morning, ladies. Okay, can I just start off by saying this was really hard. <laughs> I mean, I love learning, and I did uh, study Revelation like 10 years ago, really in-depthly. And I'm telling you, I was struggling. I was overwhelmed by all the things and all the places we could go with this, all the questions I'm sure you have that you want answers to. And I don't have all those answers. And I prayed before the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit finally gave me some peace, saying, you're here, we're on a journey together. Um, let's go together to a place to see what the point of all this is. And I hope your hearts are opened and just ready and willing to hear what the Holy Spirit has just for you when it comes to this topic. You ready? Okay. So imagine the scenario with me and my family. Our father had to go on a long trip for what felt like our whole lives. But good news, he's coming back. He's finally coming home. He sent a letter saying that he's going to come home very soon. My brother Jimmy thinks he's coming home by car. My brother Stephen thinks he's coming by plane. And of course, I think they're both wrong, because I think he's going to surprise us and come by train. The next thing you know, the three of us are all arguing over the matter, each thinking we know dad best. Then ding dong, the doorbell rings, and there's dad. We didn't even hear the doorbell because we were too busy bickering. So dad had to let himself in. We've somehow missed the whole joy of anticipating dad's homecoming because we were too busy debating and quarreling about how he's coming. You see, he told us he's coming and that we should have been having that in the most important thing in our minds. But because we were fighting about it, we created this awkwardness and disunity in our home. We miss not only the joy of anticipation, but the actuality of his presence that should have been this beautiful shared experience of fulfillment. Does this sound familiar at all? <laughs> Ladies, we are all siblings, and in this room, we are sisters. We should strive for unity always. End of the day, we all end up in our father's house, his big, big house with lots and lots of room. There's a big, big table with lots and lots of... All right, we know the song. That's a song all Christians should know. <laughs> Something we believe and often say here is when it comes to essentials, there ought to be unity. On non-essentials, non liberty. But in all things, charity. So let's remember this when we study God's word. Study topics you're interested in. I encourage you to study revelation and hard topics like predestination, the tribulation, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and even hell. Yes, hell, and that's a hot topic people get heated about. Uh, my only advice would be to consider having a sticky note that says Jesus in bold letters. And I did this, something like this. I had this when I was studying Revelation. Because sometimes we think, and we're studying, we think, hmm, what does that mean? And what do we do? We go to the commentaries. We look up those people or those educated pastors or scholars, and we try and find out what they're, what they say about it, and it almost always leads us down a rabbit trail. We may even find cool and interesting things that we've never known, but always keep a sticky note nearby. This is so whenever we're studying and we find ourselves possibly loving people a little less or notice that because they disagree, we feel differently about them, it might not be bringing us closer to Jesus, and that is a red flag. 
because that means it may be taking us away from Jesus. And the moment that starts to happen, we have to stop and recenter ourselves. This week's lesson brought us to Revelation 20 as the framework for the 1,000-year reign, or the millennium, as we call it. So this has sparked a lot of questions and conversations within your groups. However, in the effort of unity in essentials and freedom in non-essentials, I will not be speaking about the specifics of the millennium. Study it, find people to have healthy conversations with about it, but speak to each other in love, knowing that you are siblings who may disagree, but that's okay. So here are four things I'd love for us to remember when it comes to theological topics like the millennium. Number one, know what you believe and why. Paul wrote to the Roman church, encouraging them to pursue unity, refusing to judge one another based on their convictions. But by doing so, he didn't just simply say, let's all just try and get along. Instead, Paul says in Romans 14:5, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, they had to have a conviction about something before they could disagree on it. They had to have a conviction about something before they could disagree on it. And the same is true for us, not just on eschatology, which is the study of end times, but on many other social and theological issues. Be convinced in your mind what is right and what you believe to be right, which requires us to do some homework. But don't do it in a bubble. Talk, discuss, work it out with each other. Number two, acknowledge the lack of consensus. When it comes to eschatology, there has never been a clear consensus among God's people. Some of the most brilliant theological minds in history have disagreed on this topic and many others. Simply acknowledging this will create space for growth, discussion, and respect for each other. Number three, recognize the possibility we might be wrong. God is perfect, but our understanding of his word is not. Because we have limited knowledge and we all have different intellectual abilities, we're bound to get some things wrong when we study it. But we should be convinced in our own minds. But that doesn't mean we're right. We should be willing to always ask the question, what if we're wrong? And number four, listen humbly. Even if we remain unconvinced, we would be wise to give those with whom we disagree a fair hearing. We might not change our view, or we might be even more convinced that we are correct. But if we try to understand from a different point of view, we can engage far more charitably. And as our dear Tiffany Stein would always say, when we listen well, we love well. So let's strive to love well. Okay, so now we have some tools that can help us lay a good foundation as we study God's word and we form beliefs. Looking at this week's lesson, our glorious kingdom home, remember, we agree on more than we disagree. So here's what we agree on. We know Jesus wins. Yay, Jesus wins. Christ returns. Satan is thrown into hell forever. Jesus has the ultimate victory, and we will be with him forever and ever, and there are great things in store for us as his children. We all agree. If someone is in a different camp than we are after Jesus' second coming and ends up being right, trust me, we will not be pouting in eternity <laughs> because we will be with our Jesus. But if you study and you find great hope in one view over the other, if it brings you peace and joy, anticipating his return, cling to that. You know, I've always wanted to go to Israel so I could walk where Jesus walked and see all the places where he preached and healed. 
I so wish I could have been there when he was here on earth. What a gift that would be. I long for the day that I can be with my Jesus. So do I want the 1,000-year reign to be real? Absolutely. I would love to see Jesus physically on this earth. The idea of the millennium being true and literal gives me great joy and hope. The thought of seeing his face, hearing his voice, talking to him, walking with him, watching him rule and reign, ruling with him, that sounds amazing. But I'm okay if I'm wrong too. Maybe I'll be a little bummed, but at the end of the day, I'm fine because I'll get to be with my Jesus. The future kingdom of God gives me hope. So in this week's lesson, we read verses from Isaiah and Zechariah that listed peace and safety, justice, joy, knowledge of God, health and prosperity as part of the kingdom home. The future kingdom gives us hope. The future kingdom gives us hope for today because this gives us hope for tomorrow. This hope provides a deep sense of purpose, peace, joy, influencing the way we as believers can navigate challenges and find meaning in our daily lives. Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel, Micah, Amos, and Zechariah all spoke about the future kingdom. Jesus spoke frequently about the kingdom of God. He described it both as a present reality and a future fulfillment. In the present, the kingdom is seen in the hearts of his believers, in the transformative work of God, and in the individuals and communities. As Christians, our hope is anchored to the promise of the future kingdom of God. So why is this important? Because, friends, this world as it is now is not our final home. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. This world as it is now, broken and fractured, is not our home. There is a day coming when Jesus returns, when he will redeem and mend all that is broken. But today, the kingdom of God gives us hope. Can we have peace and joy in all the good things now? Not to its fullness. You know, I used to think the closer I got to God, the longer that I'm a Christian, then I will have peace and joy all the time. I would say the verse, the joy of the Lord is my strength, over and over again. I would pray Philippians 4, 7. I would pray for the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. I would think, I'm closer to God. I have these things. Then something really hard happens. And sure, I have a certain amount of peace, but it's not all the time. Same with joy. Then I would think, is my faith not strong enough? Am I not strong enough? Am I not good enough? And then I realized I quickly made it about me. It became about works. But the beauty of the hope in the future kingdom is that that hope lets me off the hook. And I want to let you off the hook as well if you ever felt the same. It's not there all the time because it can't be. We can't have perfect peace or joy while in this world as it is. Our only, only in our kingdom home is this possible. But isn't that a relief? So don't beat yourself up when you wonder why you don't have it all the time. It's not time for that yet. He gives us these glimpses of what that will be like. According to Pastor Tony Evans, God wants to give us some form of kingdom experience before he brings his kingdom worldwide. Like a taste of it, like a sample. But one day it will be all the time. There will be no fear, no worries, no tears, no pain or suffering ever, ever, ever again. 
So what we feel now in small, amount, small amounts should not discourage us. It should give us hope for what is possible and what will happen in the kingdom always. It's like when you go to Costco <laughs> and you eat one of their samples. You think, wow, yum, yum, this is great. I want to take this home and have it every day. But you can't enjoy it all the time until you buy the ginormous bag of it that costs $100 that will probably last you till eternity. But friends, there is a ginormous bag of peace, joy, health, justice, prosperity, and much, much more waiting for us in the kingdom. Thank God for the samples that we have while we are here on earth. Those samples remind us of what is to come. The kingdom of God gives us hope. God shows us glimpses throughout the Bible of the future kingdom. We should recognize that whatever we do, no matter how mundane, and whether in our families, our vocations, our churches, our communities, it's all a witness to the world. What will distinguish us will be by how we respond to the same hardships and pain that they themselves experience. For example, if we lose a child, a spouse, or a loved one, what is our belief? How do we react? 1 Thessalonians 13 discusses how we do not grieve like the world does with no hope. So we live grieving and missing them terribly, but we know we will see them again. We know that they are whole and they are in the arms of our loving Savior. But can you imagine what it would be like to grieve as those who have no hope, to wail or cry day after day with no hope of ever seeing your loved one again? That pain would be unbearable to anyone. But the kingdom of God gives us hope. So when we are losing hope, we must remind ourselves that the first advent already happened. And because of Jesus' first coming happening, which is the coming of Jesus in his birth, we can be confident in the promise of his second coming. That it will happen. Jesus will return in the future. Because of his birth, life, death, resurrection, the kingdom of God has been established in this world, but is not yet fully here. We are now living in what is called the already and the not yet, which is something that Camille touched on last week, if you remember. We are living in a time where some Old Testament prophecies have happened. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, has come. He died for all humanity's sin, rose from the dead, and now is with God the Father. But he will come back again and judge the world. And he is coming for us. Living in the tension of the already and not yet paradigm encourages a balance between gratitude for what is present and hope for what is promised. We live already knowing that Jesus is King, we experience the gift of the benefits of his salvation, the already, yet awaiting the fullness of his kingdom and the completion of his work in us, the not yet. Did you hear that? Let me repeat it again because we can forget this. We live already knowing that Jesus is king and experience the gift and the benefits of his salvation now, yet awaiting the fullness of his kingdom and the completion of his work in us. So, how do we live in the already and not yet? I want to draw attention to three ways we can practically live out our Christian life as we wait in the already and not yet framework. And this is living in the tension between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Number one, grow in faithfulness. When we grow in faithfulness, we can't help but be transformed by him. Faithfulness comes from a, pla a place of trust and loyalty. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance what we do not see. As we grow in faithfulness, we develop a deep trust and conviction in the unseen and the not yet, and a commitment to the principles associated with the promised kingdom of God. This is the life of faith, the assurance of things hoped for in the future, and the convictions of things not seen in the present. 
This is life between the times. Number two, practice active waiting. Active waiting implies being fully present in the moment with the conviction that something is happening where we are and we want to be present to it. Active waiting is choosing to believe there's a purpose in the delay or the not yet. And the person waiting, we seek to find and develop good habits that are focused on preparing the self as we patiently wait. We are ready, waiting with intention and anticipation. When I was pregnant with my daughter, we were actively waiting for her to come. We read books on newborns, books on parenting, and we prepared our home. We had her room ready, a backpack for the hospital ready for her arrival. In a similar way, we should wait for Jesus. We prepare ourselves. We live like him while we wait and we watch for him. Luke 12, 35 to 37 says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom, whom the master finds awake when he comes. Waiting is hard, but the faithful who wait will be blessed. Part of waiting involves studying his word. The more we study God's word, we are transformed and the clearer we see Jesus. Kind of like when we go to the eye doctor and they ask you to look through the phoropter, you know, that machine that's used, that has the multiple lenses that switch in front of your eyes to check your vision. Let's say you're looking through that and you see Jesus. You know it's Jesus. You don't think it's blurry, you think it's clear. The more we study his word, it's like the doctor shifting the lenses. Is that clear? Can you see better? Shocked, you're like, wow, yes, I didn't even realize it was blurry. Then you read, study, pray, worship, commune with him, include him in the pain and sorrows of life. And each time the doctor says, how about now? Is that clearer? And each time you say an emphatic, yes, yes it is. I can see Jesus. Scripture helps us see who Jesus was, is, and will always be. The Son of God, our Savior, our coming King. He is our peace, our joy, our hope. The kingdom of God gives us hope. So as we wait, we prepare ourselves. And then we also wait excitedly and joyfully, anticipating his return. And not like the kind of wait where we tap our feet and we constantly look at our watch annoyed. It's the kind of wait where, kind of like when we're baking fresh chocolate chip cookies. Do you remember what that's like, especially when you're a little younger? You wait, you sit in front of the window of the oven and you eagerly wait to pull it out of the oven. If we step away, we come back often to check on it. And then the closer it gets, the more you smell it. And you are waiting to hear that timer go off so you can take it out while it's still warm and eat it while it's warm and gooey. It's that kind of wait. Number three, mindful remembrance. In a biblical context, this refers to a purposeful and focused recall of God's teachings, promises, and actions. It involves consciously reflecting on spiritual truths and incorporating them into our daily lives. Here are two scriptures that support the idea of mindful remembrance. Deuteronomy 8.2 says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. This verse emphasizes the importance of remembering God's guidance, his testing, highlighting the value of mindful reflection on the journey and the hard lessons learned. Psalm 77, 11 and 12 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. 
Here the psalmist expresses the commitment to mindful remembrance by recalling God's past deeds and miracles. The act of meditation on God's work signifies a deliberate and focused reflection. These scriptures encourage us to actively engage in remembering God's actions and teachings, fostering this deep and intentional connection with our faith. Having a praise or a gratitude journal really helps. Reflect weekly, monthly, yearly on what you've been through and how God has been and will always be present throughout it. Looking forward to seeing him face to face. The theological framework of living in the already and the not yet is deeply practical for us Christians, living between the times. The main point is clear. We wait with anticipation for the kingdom because it represents God's promise of ultimate fulfillment. I don't know what pain or struggle you came in today carrying, but I pray today you find hope in the kingdom, our final home, where we will experience eternal life in the presence of God, where there will be no more pain, no more suffering or sin, a place where God's glory will reign supreme. The kingdom of God gives us hope, a great hope until our king returns. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your promises. Your promise of a future kingdom where the pain and suffering and challenges of this world will be no more, where we can be with you as you had intended. Your future kingdom gives us hope. Help us to live transformed lives now as we, as we wait joyfully for your return. In Jesus' name, amen.